Hey, South Bend City Church family, uh, Jason Miller here, and welcome to another teaching episode of the podcast. And I'm really excited uh, for you to get to this teaching today. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Uh, in the meantime, I know a lot of you have been probably paying attention to the slow reopening that's happening with regard to COVID. And uh, if you um, haven't been able to see what we've been saying lately as a church, uh, just to reiterate, while we are anxious to get back together on Sunday mornings and Thursday nights and to have that connection with each other and uh, to pray and worship and study the scriptures there at Studebaker 112, at the same time, uh, we are also quite convinced that we're still not at the point where that's the best thing to do uh, through the lens of public health. Um, even as the state reopens, we're hearing from local officials in St. Joe County that the caseload doesn't really justify having a bunch of people together in church, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders and sharing that space. And so uh, we're anxious to be back together, but we want to wait and do it the right way at the right time. Uh, in the meantime, we are working on some ways that we might be able to connect a little more as a church. And I'll just leave that teaser out there for now, uh, but I'll encourage you uh, keep an eye out and pay attention to the things that we're that we're sharing in the next week or two. Uh, if you're not on the email newsletter, that's by far the best way to stay tuned in. You can always sign up for that at southbendcitychurch.com. Just scroll down and you'll see uh, on the front page down a little ways, uh, there's an easy way for you to do that. Um, so anyway, so join the newsletter. We'll let you know what we've got, uh, what we're cooking up. Uh, there's also, of course, um, not just this, this podcast with the episodes, but social media on Sunday mornings. So if you haven't been aware, uh, every Sunday we're on Instagram Live at 9.30 a.m. and we're on Facebook Live at 10 a.m. And that's usually me and uh, somebody else from our community, whether it's the person who's on the teaching episode that week or another friendly, familiar face. And we're just using that time on Sunday mornings to, to be connected in real time, to encourage each other. And we'd love to see you there. Uh, again, it's Instagram Live at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time and Facebook Live at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And we'd love to see you. Uh, in the meantime, uh, today we have this teaching episode from Dr. Jessica Hughes. And I'm really grateful uh, for her word for us. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, Jessica and her husband, Andrew, and their kids, Abby and Danny, are sort of long-distance family with South Bend City Church. They used to be right here in town and a part of our community in person. Uh, but Jessica's work has taken them to Newburgh, Oregon, uh, as of last summer. Uh, out there, she is the Director of Liberal Arts and Assistant Professor of English and Theology at George Fox University. She teaches classes on the Bible and long-form fiction and philosophy and literature and Christianity and culture. Uh, some of you might know or remember Jessica from some teaching that she's done for us, whether it was uh, helping us understand the liturgical year and ways that we can practice the, the movements of those seasons in our day-to-day -day life, or perhaps uh, a teaching that she and I did together on the book of Colossians, uh, that strange household code that we looked at a little while ago. So she's back with us today. Uh, they recorded at her home in Oregon. The audio is a little different on this episode with her than it's been on other episodes, uh, but I think you can get right past that and just uh, benefit from and, and learn from the way that she takes us into another story with Jesus in this season after uh, Easter. So anyway, friends, we love you. We miss you. We are praying for you. And we'll be together soon. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, please enjoy this. Hey, South Bend City Church and podcast listeners. It's great to have this opportunity to be with you and share one of my favorite stories about Jesus. At the moment, my favorite story about Jesus is the very last story in the Gospel of John. It's this lovely little story where Jesus and his disciples are having breakfast on the beach. And Jesus questions Peter about Peter's love for Jesus. 
Now we'll get to the story in a minute, but to really appreciate what's going on in the story, it's helpful to have a bit of background on how John's gospel characterizes Jesus. So Christians have four versions of the life of Jesus that are considered definitive. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are really similar. They have a lot of the same stories and use a lot of the same language. And then there's the Gospel of John. Now, John's Gospel is markedly different from the others, both in the stories it tells and in the ways that Jesus speaks. Now, these differences shouldn't really surprise us. After all, most scholars think that John's Gospel was the last written. So it makes sense that John would tell stories that weren't already well known. But John's Gospel is also the one that presents Jesus at his most otherworldly, kind of like he's floating 10 inches above the ground. In fact, when John tells the story of Jesus' birth, he doesn't talk about Mary and Joseph. Instead, he describes Jesus as the eternal word who has come to dwell or tabernacle among the people. When Jesus first appears in the flesh, he's introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And within two beats, Jesus is changing water into wine at a wedding. Now, this is a great party trick, but an abundance of wine where everyone has enough is also the first sign of the arrival of the kingdom of God in the Hebrew Bible. So from the beginning, there is no doubt about who Jesus is for John's readers. He's the incarnate word, the holy one coming to dwell among his people. Given Jesus's characterization, you'd probably expect an even more divine Jesus after his resurrection, right? I mean, if Jesus is already the eternal word, surely the resurrected Christ will be even more glorious. And to some extent, that's what we get. John's gospel gives us a number of post-resurrection appearances. He appears to Mary Magdalene, who mistakes him for the gardener. He appears to his disciples, but Thomas isn't there, and breathes onto them the Holy Spirit in an echo of Genesis where God breathes into humanity the breath of life. And then Jesus appears again to his disciples, inviting Thomas, who missed that last appearance, to touch his wounds. And at that point, Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. And then there's the passage I'd like to think about with you today. John chapter 21. I'm going to read you the whole story now. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning with coals and there were fish on it and there was some bread. Jesus said to them, bring the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. 
None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, this is such a loaded scene in so many ways. First, I want us to think for a minute about the narrative structure. So in terms of the narrative, this scene feels very much tacked on. Right before the beach scene, right after Thomas falls to his knees and declares Jesus is my Lord and my God, the narrator says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now that is a nice, tidy ending. Jesus is resurrected, Thomas sees Jesus' wounds, and his fears and questions and doubts that the reports of the resurrection were all true, good to be true, have vanished. And then Thomas declares what the Gospel of John has been telling us all along. This man, this Jesus, he is not just a great teacher, not just an anointed leader, not just the promised Messiah, but God. And then the narrator sums everything up. The whole purpose of telling us this story is that we might believe into life. And then after that nice ending, we have the story I just read. In terms of the narrative structure itself, this tacked-on ending is kind of like a mid-credit or post-credit scene in a movie that reopens the narrative and suggests a sequel. This sort of is like a liminal space, a space that is undefined and uncertain and full of possibilities. What will the sequel be? And not all possibilities are good. But it's not only the narrative structure that points to a sort of liminality or uncertainty. It's also the setting. While the backstory begins at night, when Peter declares he's going fishing, the action all takes place early in the morning. Night and early morning. Do you know that time when it's so cold and still, but just becoming light? That hour when it's hardly day, but you know that it's no longer like night properly? That's where the story places us. And then the scene is on the beach. Now, a beach is interesting because it's not quite land, but it's certainly not the water. 
And it's also a geography that, like, depending on the time of day, it can be either land or water. And so this scene places us in a space of possibility and uncertainty through its narrative structure, through the time of day, through the physical setting. But it also points to a sort of liminality and change and uncertainty and vulnerability in its human relationships. If you remember the opening verses I just read, we learned that Peter is with some of the disciples, but not all of them. The text says Peter is with Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, and two other unnamed disciples, one of whom might have the title, the disciple that Jesus loved. But wait, weren't there 12 disciples? What happened to the others? Why aren't they together? If we've been careful readers to this point, we might be able to surmise a few things. We know Judas, Iscari Judas Iscariot is dead. There's a good chance that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are two of the people who are missing. And the reason I say that is that they were on way opposite sides of the political spectrum, and they always seemed like they were kind of tagging along a bit with the rest of the crew. And they weren't fishermen in the first place, as these other uh, disciples were. But there's still a couple others who are missing, and we don't even know who because we don't know who the two unnamed disciples are, and we're not sure if the disciple that Jesus loved is part of the twelve. So we've got this uncertain group of disciples. And then we're back in the region of the Galilee, back where the fishing disciples were originally from. So this scene confronts us with a really uncomfortable idea. After the tidy ending of John's gospel, where the disciples have watched their teacher and friend be arrested, tortured, and killed, after they've beheld the risen Jesus for themselves and have had Jesus breathe the Holy Spirit onto them, and after they've been themselves recreated and re-enlivened and declared themselves that Jesus is both Lord and God, the disciples have broken up and gone home. This raises a lot of questions for me as a reader. Why mess with the great ending? Why tack this scene on here? Like, why place us in a liminal narrative space? Why drop us in this uncertain hour between midnight and morning when we're cold and alone and it seems the future will never come? Why set us on a boat at sea, fishing, but coming up empty each time? Why give us a story about Peter and some of the disciples that draws attention to the absence of the others, reminding us that some are missing. What's this scene doing here? I think this scene is here because we start to see, through this story, that faithfulness isn't just about clinging to Jesus in worship or orthodox declarations of Jesus' lordship. Faithfulness is when we keep showing up despite our failures and despite our fears. Because you see, that's what Peter does in this scene. And it's also what Jesus does for Peter too. So now I'd like us to spend a couple of minutes thinking a bit about Peter. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus and Peter haven't had a real conversation since the night Jesus told Peter he'd betray him. The night that Jesus was arrested and tortured. The night before Jesus was crucified. And that night, what to say about that night? 
There was a skirmish in the garden where Peter cut off a guy's ear. Then Jesus was arrested. One of the other disciples snuck Peter into the high priest's residence so that Peter could try to follow what was happening. And while there, in the middle of the night, while trying to see what would happen to his friend, while warming himself by a fire in those cold, late, late night hours, Peter is confronted. Weren't you with him? Three different times in that dark, around the fire, Peter is identified by a servant as one of Jesus's friends and questioned. And each time he denies having anything to do with Jesus. And then the next day, Peter watches as his friend is crucified. It's no wonder Peter rushes to the tomb to see if it's truly empty when the women come and say that it is. And I imagine he was a bit disappointed at finding that it was just empty. And then we see nothing else of Peter until this scene on the beach. Now, regardless of whether Peter was with the disciples when Jesus appeared and breathed the Holy Spirit onto them, and regardless of whether he was in the room when Thomas talked with Jesus, this is the first time Jesus and Peter have talked since that crazy, horrible night. And given that this is in the middle of the night, that Peter decides to go fishing and comes up empty, it seems as if the story itself is telling us that despite Thomas's ending, Peter is still in that dark place. Peter is still in the middle of that cold, horrible night, and that's why Peter's anguish in this scene is so palpable. And then a stranger on the shore calls out to Peter and the others, asking if they've caught fish, instructing them to try the other side of the boat. The tremendous catch is all they need to know it's Jesus, and Peter dives into the water and swims ashore. Except he does something else first that's odd. He puts on his tunic. So this seems counterintuitive. If I'm diving into the sea for a swim, I'm more inclined to remove extra clothing. In fact, it's like a good idea to like not wear extra clothes when you go for a swim because that will weigh you down and then you might drown or something like that. But this odd detail is actually really important because it begins a series of details that play with images from throughout the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels, kind of like a series of flashbacks in a movie that remind you of everything that's happened to get you to this place in the story. This first flashback is to Eden, when in their sin and shame, Adam and Eve had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Peter's also carrying a lot of shame, and he knows Jesus knows what happened. But even in that shame, he's trying to hide with his tunic. Peter swims ashore. And he leaves his friends to manage the 153 fish they just caught, but, you know, we'll forgive him for that. But then when he gets there, nothing happens. Jesus and Peter meet, and there's no embrace. There's no rebuke. There's no words of encouragement or reprimand. Jesus instructs them to bring the catch that they've caught so he can barbecue it. He's already got the fire going with one fish and some bread. And in this moment, we're reminded of the feeding of the crowds on a hill around this same lake, where Jesus multiplied a few loaves and fish and was nearly made king by force. But this time, the disciples are bringing not scarcity, but abundance. But Peter? Still nothing. 
In fact, I wonder if in this moment, as he sees the fish coming up, if he remembers that earlier scene and feels that bittersweet pang of what was, what had been before his betrayal. But nothing is said. And so they eat breakfast. And still, nothing is said. Have you ever had a night that got a bit out of hand? Maybe a conversation or encounter that became a bit too vulnerable and revealing? Or an adventure that cut you and your friends to the core? And then it's the morning after, and everything feels tentative and strange, and you're not quite sure if you can still even be friends after what you've said or done. Now that the truth about you is out there and is known by the other. Do you know that uncertainty that makes you desperate to know where you stand and what your friend thinks, even if it means knowing the friendship is over? That is where this story places Peter. He's rushed ashore, but nothing. All through breakfast, nothing. Will he and Jesus ever talk about what happened? Finally, after breakfast, the moment comes. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Now, we all know that English doesn't have as many words for love as Greek does. And some of you may have learned about agape as the redemptive, all-encompassing, selfless form of love. Another really important type of love is philia. Now, philia is that deep love of intimate friendship. And friendship in the ancient world was a serious relationship that was not taken lightly at all. In the ancient world, and particularly in how the New Testament views friendship, friendship is about true kindred spirits. It's about affectionate delight. It's also about that soulish honesty and vulnerability. Friendship is particular and personal and has no purpose except for the value of the relationship itself. In this scene, the first two times Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you agape me? And both times Peter replies, Lord, you know that I feel you. At this moment on the beach, when Jesus is asking, do you love, do you agape me? He's asking, is your love like God's? Is it selfless and committed and unending and grand? And Peter's reply is, you know, I love you. Not an idea, not selflessly, not perfectly or without fail, but I love you. You're my friend. Can you imagine the space between each time that Jesus asks that question? The deep gaze into the fire and the uncomfortable silence? Peter must have been waiting for Jesus to say, but what about that night? And the third time Jesus asks the question, that third time must have cut Peter to the core. Three denials from Peter. Three questions from Jesus. To make it worse, the third time Jesus also changes his verb. Peter, do you feel me? This third time, it is as if Jesus is asking, yeah, but Peter, are you my friend? Peter knows what Jesus is getting at. Peter replies, Lord, you know all things. All things. All things. Lord, you know what happened. You know my weakness and brashness. You know that in my fear and uncertainty and vulnerability in the courtyard of the high priest, I denied even knowing you just to save myself. All of that is the subtext to, Lord, you know all things. And so Peter says, 
Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, Philia here. But somehow this third time opens something up because unlike the last two where Peter was told to feed Jesus' flock and tend Jesus' sheep, this time when Jesus says, feed my sheep, he doesn't fall silent or ask the question again. This time, Jesus muses on Peter's future and invites Peter, just as he had years earlier on the beach when Peter had also been fishing, to follow. It's not surprising that given the scene we've just witnessed and all that vulnerability, that Peter is still feeling a bit insecure. And this might just be why he asks about the beloved disciple who's standing nearby. And what about him? And then Jesus says these words. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. It would be wrong to read this as a rebuke because it isn't. It's exactly what Peter needs to hear. You see, of course there are other people that Jesus loves. But this isn't about them. It's not about Peter being commissioned as part of a group. This is about Peter and his friend. Peter needs something from Jesus. You remember how he jumped out of the boat, not walking on water like he once did, but swimming this time to meet Jesus? Peter needs some sort of affirmation, some sort of restoration. And it seems to me really significant then that the beloved disciple is an onlooker on this scene. Because, sure, he's there. The one whom Jesus loves is there. But the beloved disciple is not the reason that Jesus came to the beach. Jesus came for Peter. It's Peter who rushes to the beach. Peter who first receives the invitation to breakfast. And it's Peter to whom Jesus gives himself in this vulnerable, tender conversation. Peter, the one who betrayed him. And so when Jesus tells people, Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. I don't think it's part of a rebuke. It's an invitation to stop worrying about being less beloved than someone else. It's an invitation to follow Jesus, not just as part of a whole, but in our particular weakness and our particular fails, failures and our particular fears. It's an affirmation of Peter's friendship that keeps showing up, that keeps following Jesus even after that horrible night. And so Jesus' invitation rings with approval, you follow me. And I think that's part of what makes this scene so powerful for readers. Like Peter, we know that under pressure and in fear, in the darkness of our insecurities and exhaustion, we sometimes fail to be the people we imagine ourselves to be. Our heroic visions for being that friend in a crisis, or being the business leader with a new great vision for ethical business, or being the parent who will always be patient and kind and wise with our children, our heroic visions too often prove fantasies. We avoid our friends and their pain. We let the machine of work simply go on according to the greedy visions of others. And we are not the patient, kind, wise parents we think we'll be. We fail. And we know we fail. And maybe that's okay. Maybe faithfulness isn't about getting it right all the time. But about showing up. Again and again. And lest we begin to think that the only reason we get in on Jesus' love at all is because we're part of the group of humanity or God's people or whatever, this scene tacked onto the end of John's gospel suggests something different. 
It suggests that Jesus also shows up for us as individuals in our doubts, our failures, and our shame. And before making us own up to anything or have a hard conversation, he invites us to breakfast. He invites us to rest and nourishment. And then the hard conversation, sure. But even with all that out in the open, will the doubt and failure and shame acknowledged in the growing light of morning, Jesus keeps showing up for us again and again, inviting us into the divine life as his friends. But this isn't only Peter's story. This is also Jesus's story. I started by saying that Jesus seems to float 10 inches above the ground in John's gospel, but not in this scene. In this scene, Jesus's humanity is as real as the tension between Jesus and Peter. So of all the things that Jesus could be doing after the resurrection, he's barbecuing fish on the beach. In fact, we don't even see any ascension in John. Instead of an ascension, we get this scene where Jesus becomes the host and the cook. And he invites his friends to come have breakfast. Before the crucifixion, Jesus might give a lengthy discourse on eating bread, which he then defines as his flesh and links to eternal life. But now, after his suffering and death, he's not pontificating on the power of the cross or creating an abundance of fish from his own hands. No. After the cross and the tomb, Jesus is cooking breakfast for his friends. And in this moment, we see that Jesus' suffering and death don't give him the power to transcend or overcome his humanity. Jesus' suffering and death bring his humanity into focus, revealing the simplicity and the intimacy of human nature. And it is amid this mundane work of cooking breakfast and sitting around a fire that Jesus is finally able to speak as a wounded friend to his friend Peter. Up till now in John's Gospel, we really haven't seen Jesus this intimate and this conversational. When he talks to his disciples about being his friends before the crucifixion, it's in a multi-chapter discourse that's hard to follow. When he talks to the woman at the well, he also ends up launching into a long speech. But here, Jesus creates space for Peter to speak. He creates space around the fire and prepares food to feed Peter. He asks questions and listens to Peter, hearing both what is said and all that is left unsaid. He really doesn't seem like the same Jesus as from before. And this sense that Jesus is different doesn't just come from this conversation with Peter. Remember, Jesus' disciples don't even recognize him when he first calls out to them while they're fishing. And the same thing happened earlier when Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And in some of the other Gospels, too, like when the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize Jesus as they walk together. Something in Jesus' experience has rendered him unrecognizable to his friends. His suffering has left him scarred physically. But in this story, we also see that he's transformed relationally. It's as if in the crucifixion, Jesus comes to understand the real depth of what humanity can do to each other, not in an abstract way, but he knows it in his body. He doesn't just experience the abstract evil even of our sins placed upon him, 
but he knows the personal evil of Peter betraying him. He knows the personal suffering of his own body being tortured. And something in this not only crystallizes his humanity, but I think it also makes this tender and vulnerable scene with Peter possible. You see, it's only after Jesus' suffering that he invites his disciples to come and have breakfast. And it's about a very hard part of that same suffering that Jesus confronts Peter on the beach. And if we're thinking theologically as well as narratively, it's that very suffering on the cross that restores Peter. And it's out of that suffering that Jesus instructs Peter to feed his sheep and become a source of nourishment for others. It's as if John's gospel is suggesting with this tacked on post-credit ending that this is what the risen Christ's glory and ascension look like. It looks like showing up on the beach and cooking breakfast. His glory looks like a shared meal. It looks like friends having hard conversations. It looks like the welcome of intimate friendship where suffering and failure can be known and shared and somehow healed and redeemed. It looks like the vulnerability that enables us to become a source of nourishment for others. Jesus' ascension in John's gospel is this faithfulness to Peter. This showing up in the thick darkness before dawn and preparing breakfast before Peter even knows Jesus is there. So why do I love this story of breakfast on the beach at dawn? As we feel the psychological weight of Peter's betrayal hovering over the scene, as we see Jesus as a friend who has been hurt by his friend, as we see the deep vulnerability and even dangerous honesty of friendship, we also see something else. We see that even if the story is over, even if the narrative is closed and there appears to be a nice, tidy ending, Jesus keeps showing up for us anyway. I think that's why it matters that the scene is actually tacked on. Nothing, not suffering, not death, not betrayal, not even the apparent end of the story will keep God from showing up for those he loves. In fact, it is in this faithfulness to us that God's glory in Jesus is revealed. God's glory can look like the divine presence tabernacling among his people, or the dark cloud at Sinai, or the word become flesh and dwelling among us. But in this gospel, Jesus' divine glory is most clearly seen in the simple faithfulness that keeps showing up in the practical faithfulness of making breakfast around a fire, and in the tender faithfulness of friendship. And so, friends, may you hear Jesus' glorious invitation to come and have breakfast. May you know the healing intimacy of his love for you. And through Jesus, may you be empowered to keep showing up, becoming a source of nourishment, life, and friendship for others. Grace and peace be with you all.